0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. We are live. Welcome to In Class with Dr. Gray Carr with Carr. In Class with Carr, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, in narrative, in the world. We appreciate this. Yes. All right. Um. Yeah, we decided to do something a little different. Not a little different. Probably this is going to be the future because we need spaces that are safe, free from trolls, free from folk who shouldn't be here. Just, I just wanted to see what it was all about. No, you need to be here to work. And if you are not part of this family, this growing family, then, uh, you know, it's okay. It's all That's right. It's right. all right.
1: Come with us, come with us. You must come with us. How are you doing, Professor Hunter?
0: I am I am uh, sweating because I was in the sauna before, uh, so I'm still sweating from the oh, inside because we're going to be talking about health today. So I just want to yeah. uh, thank you. And we have a special guest that will be joining us shortly.
1: Wonderful, yes,
2: wonderful.
0: Dr. Senyata Amin is in the yes. Process. Because, you know, as you guys know, we've been talking about this, you inspired me to think more deeply about things, to, to consider, souls of black folk which we did and those of you who haven't read it it's in here in narrative and the way we're going to be doing book clubs again we're jailbreaking the universities we're also jailbreaking how we think about things so normally we have a book club discussion we read the book and then we go around and we talk about it chit chat blah 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 but to me we got work to do so our public domain work, like Souls of Black Folk, like The Miseducation of the Negro, which we've also, uh, we're doing annotating and having a discussion about, are gonna be more work book clubs. And then we're gonna have book clubs, the, the traditional ones like uh, Parables of the Talents and the Sowers. the Earthseed, uh do uh, books by Octavia Butler, we're gonna have a discussion around that. We're probably gonna d- dive into some Toni Morrison at some point, we're gonna probably do some, you know, other kinds of books throughout the year. But souls of black folk, I thought, was a great entry point, especially when you said, Dr. Carr, that W. E. B. Du Bois had a 100-year plan that he wanted to to do around yes. 10 issues that impact Black America, and if we solve these two issues, we solve our problems. And it's not about the government. It's not about you know racism. It's things we can do. So I thought it would be very helpful today to first of all talk about W. B. Du Bois and start with health. Because we're in the midst of a pandemic, whether it's going or coming or waxing or waning, whether you get vaccinated or not, that's your business. But this health crisis has really put a bullseye on black people. We know we already knew that there was a problem and we already knew that, you know, from from doctors not listening to us to, you know, every category we're in the top, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease. You know, it's like everything. And my question is, what can we do? To solve it and what have we done in the past through mm-hmm. lens? and how did wb du bois think about health
1: wow that's a fantastic so, uh, no that's a fantastic set of questions and, and 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 observations and trajectory we're on so everybody here now live uh we are in the space that we are building as we are freeing ourselves we're in the narrative side and so no less candid no less um us pouring clean glass of water, but this is the space that we control and have conversations in exclusively. It's very important. So, th- for, for that, thank you. Um, we started about three minutes after noon because I was on another call. So, I want to mention, and there may be some folk who are there who will be coming over here because they are members of Narrative as well. But uh, one of my JEGNAs, uh, our JEGNAs, uh, his 79th birthday, uh, Nate Norman who uh, for many years was a professor at um, Temple University, Fordham University, a good brother out of West uh, Tennessee. Um, He is now um, on faculty at Morehouse College. So, you know, we believe in giving our elders their flowers while they are on top of the earth, even as they become even more powerful, they become ancestors. And we got caught up in a conversation because this past week, was also, they marked the ritual of transition into eternity for a brother who was on the faculty of Morehouse for about 60 years, Dr. Toby Johnson, uh, the first person of African descent to get a PhD in political science at Columbia, which is a signal landmark achievement in the social structure category, but nothing remarkable at all in the governance structure category, which is where we're gonna spend most of our time today. Um, So that's why we started a few minutes after we had I was finishing up and uh, I said, Oh my God! I got the high sign from Professor Hunter. Say, hey, man, I gotta go. I gotta go pull this ship. So they all told me, including Ajua, who was one of his students when he was at Temple. Ajua Botway Osmore told me to tell you hello, Professor, and some of them will be coming over in a minute when they finish that call up. So I just wanted to say that. That's why we didn't start right at noon. Um, du Bois, actually, let me tie that to Du Bois a little bit because when, uh, like I said, uh Pop Norman, as we call him, is in Atlanta. He and his wife uh, got a house down there and. Called themselves going to retire. And that Negro waited about two weeks and snuck over to the uh, Atlanta University Center and said, "Y'all need some teachers. And now he's directing the writing program at Morehouse. You know, Blackfield can't spell retire. Perhaps we should learn. But we haven't yet. That having been said, uh, a brother who walked that campus for a number of years, the first time uh, he came to the Atlanta University Center uh, to work, In fact, at Atlanta University, he was 29 years old. He stayed there till he was 42 from 1897 to 1910. Is the brother we're going to talk about a little bit more this morning, uh, this afternoon, this evening, wherever you are in the world. And that is, of course, William Edward Burghardt Du Bois. Uh, For those who have uh, completed or have undertaken the work of going into Souls of Black Folk, Uh, And it's been a lot of very good feedback. Uh, And and, shout out to you, Reyes, shout out to the whole narrative team. Professor Hunter, shout out to you for creating a very interactive, uh, very intuitive uh, experience of reading. Um, We know that reading cannot be displaced. It can't be. There's no substitute for it. It involves uh, the development of the mind in ways that other things simply can't do. When my students say, well, Dr. Carl, we have to read this. Is there a video? And I say, even if there was, it wouldn't matter because you've got to engage the words with your eyes and allow yourself your imagination to develop. There's a very important process in that. But what we've done over in the na- here in Narrative is we have combined that reading process with the discussion. So there is a bit of a classroom feel and several people have more than several have remarked on that as you've gone through it. So if you have, you know, the biography, we won't uh, get into that much today. I'll I'll, I'll say just very quickly, born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, February 23rd, uh, 1868, three years, not even three, not quite three after the end of the U.S. Civil War, Dr. Du Bois would be. Uh, Raised by his mother, Mary. Uh, father Alfred didn't know his father, um, but you know had a had a close knit community there in Great Barrington, who we called the Black Burke Arts. His mother made transition just as he was finishing up high school. He thought he was going to Harvard like the rest of the white boys. He was top of the class in his little town, but uh, they was like, no Negro, that's not for you. So he ended up getting three degrees from Harvard: a bachelor's, uh, and then a master's and Ph.D. However. Uh, the first degree he got, the first college degree he got, was when they sent him to Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he fell in love with the idea of scholarship for the race. And he spent the rest of his life there. And over the arc of his long life, he did a number of things that you all can talk, you know, can review in in, there, in, in the Souls Black Folk conversation we had before making transition in Accra, Ghana uh, on August 22nd, 1963. Literally the morning of what became the March on Washington we go back through the time zones the day before the march on Washington, uh, technically in Washington, D.C. So um, over the arc of that nearly century, 95 years, what Du Bois was able to do was in many ways chronicle the journey of African people, not just in the United States, but around the world in that century, almost century of life. And so we focused, as you say, on the souls of black folk, uh, which was written. 60 years before he made transition and in some ways freezes Du Bois in time. We talked all about that. And so if folk in a minute want to offer some comments or questions about that, as we get into the health piece, you know, as we get into conversation, you know, certainly that's welcome. But um, I think the souls of black folk is something that is focused on more for what the United States is than it is for what Du Bois is and was. And let me set that aside for a second and, and get to the point, as I say, um, or or, or re- emphasize the point, as I say, Dr. Norman, after leaving Philadelphia, New York, Philadelphia, taught City College for many years, then came to Temple. That's where I encountered him. He was on my dissertation committee, then retired, moved to Atlanta, went right over to the Land University Center. He was following in the footsteps, following in the footsteps of Du Bois. And as we started, uh, about 180 seconds past what we normally do at noon. Uh, If this had been Du Bois's classroom at Atlanta University when he joined the faculty of Atlanta University after being at Wilberforce and then uh, going to Philadelphia where he wrote the Philadelphia Negro and then coming to the Atlanta University Center and uh, taking this uh, professorship in sociology at the Atlanta University in 1897. While he was still completing what would be published two years later, is *The Philadelphia Negro*, uh, if we, if this had been us trying to get in Du Bois's classroom in 1897 or in 1898 or any time between 1897 and uh, when he left to take over *The Crisis* magazine, found *The Crisis* magazine in 1910 as he was a founder of the NAACP, one of the founders. If we had tried to come in Du Bois's classroom at Atlanta University three minutes late, in fact, one minute late, in fact, thirty seconds late, in fact. Two seconds late. In fact, one second late. We would not have been able to get in because according to his students, uh, several of whom were interviewed by David Levering Lewis for volume one of his two volume history of W.E.B. Du Bois, biography of Du Bois. uh, He was able to talk to some of those elders before they made transition many years ago. And they said Dr. Du Bois would have his pocket watch on the podium. And as he began his lecture, he began his lecture not just on the minute, but on the second. (laughs) <laughs> on the second that the clock hit. And at that second, the door was locked. And uh, he didn't even listen to appeal. So if you knew you were going, oh, I can see the door. Yeah, but then boom. Okay, I might as well just stop because I can't get in. Uh, but that type of punctuality to the second marked the way that Du Bois saw the world. So what we're going to do today is spend a little time expanding that second, expanding it into the uh, the rhythms with which Du Bois uh, viewed the African experiences that we now collectively call the black experience in the 20th century. And with an eye toward the so-called 21st century, realizing that all these numbers are arbitrary and are marked by time and space that are set in this case by other people. We start talking about 21st, 22nd centuries. But at any rate, Du Bois. Just as he clocked when he would start his lecture and lock that classroom door, had that classroom door locked. He also charted out his work projects. He charted out projects weeks at a time, months at a time, years at a time. He started doing this in his 20s. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about souls of black folk. He he envisioned a social science project that is going to impact that is impacting not only our conversation today, which will be the first of these conversations on a specific subject as it relates to black people. But he envisioned solving problems using the intellectual work that he had developed as the finest social scientist of his time, not just the finest black social scientists, which is saying much because there was a lot of great black social scientists, not a lot, but the ones who were trained were incredibly well-trained. Everybody from Edward Franklin Frazier, Ira DeReed, all these cats who worked with Du Bois or who sometimes argued with him, but who were trying to advance our people, but there wasn't a social scientist on the planet that was better than Du Bois. And so he charted this study of African people out. what he called Negro problems, beginning at Atlanta University. And so we're gonna get into that next. Go ahead, Brock, Champion.
2: Muted.
0: So because a lot of things going on. And again, you know, we are building this space and these are growing pains. It's a good problem. I think we crashed the server. So I'm gonna open it up to YouTube in a second. But before we do, um, I want to have an internal conversation with whoever's here right now. We're gonna open it up. but I think you know the work that needs to be done and it needs to be, you know we 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 talk a lot as a community as as people. we talk a lot about the things we want to do. We need to spend more time doing. I want to spend less time talking, more time doing. And if there's a blueprint, again, architects use blueprints to build there are many many blueprints so let let us follow the blueprints and let's not reinvent the wheel in this space so today we're going to talk about healthcare. i want it to be a very pointed conversation about some of the things we can do and then there's going to be a whole lesson taught by the great doctor and amen yes. and we're going to have other doctors who are in um administration and yes. public health uh you know because we have to start to build I think the Cuban model, and you and I had an off mic conversation, which we're going to have here. We did, and, um, you know, because I asked you, why is Cuba able to create this great healthcare? Ninety plus percent of the people are literate. Everybody has healthcare. They they have this model that works that they can send doctors throughout the diaspora, diaspora train folk uh, for nearly nothing. Why why are all my doctor friends saddled with three hundred thousand? <laughs> Woo! Why is that? And you, and you
1: said something profound, so I, I think we should say it here before we go live on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, because as with narrative, you know, it's not about healthcare; It's about how you envision your society. And what Cuba? would you see? What Cuba is able to do? They're able to do because they have a governance structure that puts people at the center of society, and that is why whenever you see or hear the propaganda about what the Cubans are or aren't, and most people who are saying the Cubans, I don't want to be like Cuba, they're saying that because they don't know anything about Cuba. When people say that, what they're basically saying is that Cuba has been marked as an enemy of the United States. Why is that? Because Cuba puts people at the center of their society. That doesn't mean they do everything right. That doesn't mean there isn't racism. If you read Pinchon, which is um, Carlos Moore's uh, biography of growing up black in Cuba, you see that race problem is there. But one thing that is not there is capitalism, is profit at the center of the society. So that's why there are a lot of, as we talked about, I mean, uh, that's why a lot of more and more medical students from the United States and other places are going to Cuba to be trained, and one of the things, if you're a Cuban-trained doctor, you have to do, you have to spend time in your career with your skills helping people who don't have access to healthcare. That's why they can export doctors. Because if you came through a Cuban medical school, you're going to work in the countryside. You're going to work with people who don't have access. You're going to, and you're not, you're not working in in terms of trying to remedy something that has already occurred. You're doing preventative medicine. You you're, you're having wellness checks in old folks' homes. You're you're sitting there in the clinic as the babies get brought in, so you can check on them. I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks, and this is how you do it. And as and as you said, one of the people you know we we're in conversation with, my dear friend Reba Kelsey, who is down at Atlanta in the Morehouse School of Medicine, you know she's saying you know, and who's traveled in East Africa, who's traveled in Haiti and other places, said this Cuban model really decenters profit. And that is why Cuba is such a threat. Because if you decenter profit, it all blows up in your face from pharmaceuticals to the debt incurred to get a degree. And now you, you wanted to work in the country clinic, but you're going to take this high profile job being a surgeon and doing this elective surgery because you've got $300,000 in debt. And you, you, so, I mean, it isn't about the health care, it's about the profit. And that's the thing we can learn from Cuba. And as Dr. Amin is coming to join us, we understand wellness is at the center of health. And that's what Du Bois and them, one of the things they were after when they talk about the Atlanta University Studies. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today because we mapped it. I mapped all the healthcare out on our Africana Studies framework. So are we we gonna, we can start here. You wanna, um, are we, oh wait, again. I keep muting myself
0: because I'm getting 50-11. Uh, yeah, he's, to, he's doing everything at once. Bing, 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 bing. And it sounds like, you know, a cash register going off uh, every time somebody texts me about you know, not being able to get in or having, you know, a slow server. And I want to invite Dr. uh Amen in because, you know, she has all of the things. And no I about, question I think about growing up, um, and I was you and I had a conversation yesterday. Uh my dad, who I rest in power love dearly. I you, you hear the thing. Uh that's <laughs> right, everybody's definitely like wait a minute did the boat leave yet? We got to get on the ark. No, yeah, okay, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me just open it up really quickly uh and go live And public and publish. Boom. Now it's live. Hi YouTube. How y'all doing? Uh welcome. Uh we were having a conversation and narrative, but y'all crashed the site and I'm not mad at that cuz that means we it's are good no problem. <laughs> means we got to and I I know we we did the bandwidth thing, but that's neither here nor there.
1: That's all right even more that's beautiful i rebuke it in the name of jesus in the name covered with the blood now come on now see that's hey what y'all don't know is that's part of wellness in black communities It's same. just the physical it's the spiritual we rebuke that in the name look you old folks they're gonna give you that little tea Soon y'all gonna talk about it but you know what they're gonna do before they do that they're gonna pray to whoever they're praying to and put hands on you so go on and rebuke it it's rebuked <laughs>
0: You and I were having this conversation because, you know, it hurts my heart that, you know, black people were so vulnerable to this virus. You know, first we thought our melanin was going to protect us. And then we were dying in droves primarily because of where we work and how we work, but also our underlying health conditions. And I'm like, is that something we can solve? And, what you know, and as we look at the past and what we have done and how we got through 400 years of bondage here all over the diaspora, you know, we can do better. So if we can do better, we will do better. And I want to, again, lay the blueprint down so people can just follow, follow however, you know. But my father was a very smart person who every day ate, uh, ate, you know, cheese eggs with a lot of cheddar cookies and grits and water had his tea with the milk in it that had about 50,000 things of sugar. It was delicious, you know, <laughs> and he would have pork uh, and beans and rice and veal cutlets with American cheese on it on Mondays, on Wednesday, Chinese food. He had, um, his favorite was shrimp egg foo young with rice. I never saw anything green on his plate. And, you know, he would say to me, you know, you're going to have high blood pressure. My father had high blood pressure. My mother, had high pressure. your mother has it. You're going to have it. And I was like, no, I, I don't think I'm going to have high blood pressure because I think we can do it through diet. It's not necessarily heredity, right?
2: Mm-hmm. That's, and right. That's now,
0: right. I'm more than 50 years old, Dr. Carr. Not only do I not have high blood pressure, my blood pressure is perfect. My cholesterol is 130 and I need to lose some weight, but I'm healthy. And, you know, I look at taking things into your own hands, which all of us can do who are on this space right now. That's and if the boys. And and you told me the boys highlighted health as one of the the tenets. He had ten. We're probably gonna do five in narrative because I don't you know I don't know if I'm gonna be here a hundred years, but <laughs> at least fifty. We could at least do fifty and get the get the ball rolling. And somebody else can pick up the baton. But what did the boys say about health?
1: Great. Um. Uh oh.
0: What did you-
1: No, no, it's all good. No, 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 we're here. Um,
0: don't don't you do it.
1: No, no, no. Don't worry. It's it's rebuked. It's a rebuke. And tell y'all folks, we're over on YouTube now, so everybody is here. Uh, For those of you who uh, have not yet signed up for narrative, please do that. Uh, we switched over to YouTube because, uh, among other things, everybody who flooded in the narrative side, everything works well. It's just that in a moment, the technology decided that they're going to try to throw us a curveball. But we're black people. We hit the curve and the slider and the change up and the fastball. So we're here. It's good to see everybody. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was that was that was the ancestral uh, connection. Dr. Du Bois. And it's important to, to note note this. We always talk about individuals not being able to beat institutions. Remember, Du Bois was trained at a black institution, Fisk. He was then trained at Harvard and then University of Berlin, uh, two white institutions. And he was one of the finest, if not the finest social scientists of his generation of any background. And when he came back to the United States, uh, his only uh, job offerings, in fact, the only potential for him to work, were not at the white schools, including Harvard and Berlin, two of the leading institutions in the world in, in European social structure, but black ones. So he worked at Wilberforce University. He um, was offered to do a research study at the University of Pennsylvania. They wanted to take uh, advantage of his first rate skills to do a social study of black people in the city of Philadelphia. And he couldn't even live on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. He, his wife, Nina, and their daughter, uh, their son, Burghardt. They weren't even allowed to live on campus, and we don't want you, Negroes, on campus. We want your mind to study the social problem of your people over there in the Seventh Ward in Philadelphia. And when they left there, they came to Atlanta University. Individuals don't beat institutions. It was when Du Bois came to Atlanta University that he inherited, as a professor of social uh, social studies, uh, social sciences, sociologist in training, he inherited the leadership of a program that was actually started two years before he got there it's called they had they started something in 1895 called the Atlanta University sociology laboratory that laboratory was set up based on something that Hampton and Tuskegee had begun at the early part of the decade of the 1890s earlier in in the 1890s they had conferences on labor education and farming this is during the period in the 1890s where the pe- white folk in the we're using our African states framework now. I'm going to put it very plainly. The problem we had in this country as African people in the United States, and there are people outside the United States, I'm going to connect that too in a minute. And then as Dr. Armon comes in in a second, the social structure we faced in this country was, you know, up until the end of enslavement, the only concern for black health in this country, in terms of the collective of black folk who were primarily enslaved in this country was health in order to continue to be able to extract labor and the labor value from them. So when you read the book, Birthing a Slave or Harriet Washington's work, Medical Apartheid, uh, my friend Dorothy Roberts at the University of Pennsylvania, Killing the Black Body. Uh, theres I mean, this stuff has been well-documented over the years. And then um, the, the, everything from uh, experimentation on black women, those plantation experiments, the so-called father of gynecology in Alabama, J. Marion Sims, operating on black women without anesthesia, Uh, putting black people in harm's way whether it be the yellow fever ep- epidemic or the 1790s where you saw Richard Allen in them, 1780s, Richard Allen and them in Philadelphia, they're putting black people out to help because there's a yellow fever epidemic and they're going to make black people expend- expendable from Africans being depended on for their scientific knowledge. We know uh, Cotton mother depending on Onesimus, who introduced the concept, one of the people who introduced the concept of inoculation, we're getting vaccines now, go back to a- Onesimus and said we've well, seen this smallpox business in West Africa where I'm from, you take a little bit of it, introduce it to the person. They develop antibodies. And that's how, you know, he he's literally showing them how to do it. But all of this is based around the central theme, which is the labor of black people. So you're only keeping them healthy so they can work. Well, after the civil war, of course, the debate then ensues in the social structure. What do we do with these Negroes? We can't get rid of them. There are too many of them. So the HBCUs, people say, well, HBCUs were set up to educate black folk. Yeah. And what they were teaching black folk wasn't necessarily correlated to what black folk needed. They were all kind of competing interests and they weren't black interests. They were white interests. You read James Anderson's book, The Education of Blacks in the South, uh, a number of books, William Watkins, The White Architects of Black Education. And so by the 1890s, you had these debates, Cape and Springs, West Virginia, Lake Mohawk, New York. They, you know who's not there? Black folk. But you know who is there? White folk who are trying to control black education. And by the 1890s, they said we're going to have some conferences at Tuskegee, some conferences at Hampton. And we're going to build them around this idea of what we think black folk need to be concentrating on. And what do we think they need to be concentrating on? Well, they need to concentrate on labor. Are we going to train them to work education? So what kind of education do we want? And they primarily want teachers and preachers. I'll tell you right now, many of them. These, these people in social structure, and farming. Why? Because we need their agricultural labor. Enslavement is over, but the agricultural needs aren't. So this is when you see in the transition. Meanwhile, black folk are like, yeah, we can use all that stuff, but we need to use it for our benefit. So you start seeing in the governance structure, when we start health talking about healthcare, you're seeing African people during enslavement bringing their knowledge, their ways of knowing, which we'll get to in a second, with them on these boats. But the emphasis for African people has always been, regardless of the great variations of cultures, an emphasis on not just physical wellness, but mental wellness and social wellness. And Professor Um Hunter, you know, we're going to have a great conversation with Dr. Amin, who is is essential in helping us what she calls, she calls it decolonizing wellness. In other words, re-anchoring our healing our question of health around the question of wellness. And so the role of the healer in terms of the governance structures of African people, very important. Spiritual traditions, herbal, herbalists, like Dr. Amin, who's also a herbalist, preventative medicine versus corrective medicine. And self-care wasn't just about the individuals, about the collective. And it was part of institution building. So coming out of enslavement then, coming out of enslavement, you see black folk who are now going to be asked to take over some of this taking care of black bodies have their own agenda. So as you see Meharry Medical College and, and, and hospitals uh, started, when you see uh, Howard University Hospital started, which was Freedman's Hospital before that, you're seeing black people who are being trained, but who have their own ideas about what they're going to use those skills for. Now, let me move very quickly to the next category because when Du Bois shows up at Atlanta University in 1897, they've already had two years of conferences on what these Negro problems are, but they're based on Hampton and Tuskegee. In fact, let me just pause there because I want to go to the the other categories, ways of knowing. In fact, I'll I'll do that very quickly. This won't even be 60 seconds. In terms of ways of knowing, we understood when we came to this country and then preserved it during enslavement, the idea in terms of health, that tending to health was also part of one's total being. And that total being wasn't just the human being. We see that when Du Bois, for example, gets to Atlanta University, who is one of his counterparts on the HBCU faculty not far from Atlanta in Tuskegee, Alabama, the great George Carver. George Washington Carver said, I listened to the plants. I talked to it, the plants. They told me what I could do. In fact, he's bringing a tradition, even though he's a trained scientist, he's bringing a tradition that this sister, Laudelle Snow, in a book she published in the uh, 80s called Walking Over Medicine. She said, you know, these black people, you know what she did? She was at Michigan State at the time. She said, I sat in these clinics and I listened to these black women and men. I listened to them talk about how they healed their children. I listened to what the doctors said. And then I listened to what these people said. And I realized how they view healing, how they view being able to use plants, how they use stuff in their yard to, to, to cure choleric, to come in and deal with people. And, and, you know, Sonia is going to talk about all this. So I'm just previewing in a little bit to say that George Washington Carver understood the value of being. Not just as a human, but as part of an ecosystem of natural life. And that is a way of knowing in terms of our African studies framework that emerges out of African experiences we brought with us. Now. By the time Du Bois gets to Atlanta University in the social structure, they're looking at black people as something that is going to affect their bottom line by they. I mean the American capitalist system. How do we keep them healthy enough to work? How do we deal with the question of public health? I mean, are they sick? Are they gonna get us sick? Are they gonna, we're gonna lose the workforce? And so the question of Negro problems as it relates to health was seen as a social dilemma. This is the same time that in terms of uh, the next category, science and technology, We start talking about the technology of medicine, black folk aren't seeing doctors because there aren't black doctors, not many, and the white doctors ain't seeing them. And so they're relying on these ways of knowing and their own technology that they developed, that they brought from Africa, adapted to the diaspora, and then continue to pursue the natural healing, the kind of behavior that goes along with that, that has a spiritual dimension and a physical dimension. But when Du Bois gets there, he says, okay, let's set the scene. He and Nina and little Berghardt get to Atlanta. It's 1897. Those studies have been going on at the Atlanta university sociology lab for a couple of years before that. And they recruit Du Bois, the best social scientists in the country. One of the best in the world set this up and what do they do? Atlanta university becomes the first. And for many years, the only institution carrying out system- systematic studies of Africans in the United States and publishing the findings. So Du Bois brings the skills he developed as a social scientist in Nashville at Fisk, in Cambridge at Harvard, and then at University of Berlin. He brings those skills to this question. If I'm gonna study Negro problems, how do I listen to black people? So now what he's doing is he's taking the skills he's developed in a social structure that is really anti-black. And he's applying them in a governance structure. In other words, who are we to each other? So let me start asking. And so let me just read to you from the autobiography of W.B. Du Bois, how he set it up. And this is where we get to these categories, which don't necessarily some of them overlap. But he comes to this. He says, you know, um, well, I'll paraphrase and I'll get to the, the direct quote. When he gets there in 1897, they've already published the first study in 1896. That study was called Morality Among Negroes in Cities. No, yeah, mortality, not morality, mortality. So black folk have moved, have moved to the cities during enslavement. After enslavement, then you see this explosion in particularly the urban south, Tallahassee, Nashville, places like that, New Orleans. You see, they're in the poor part of town. The social conditions are terrible. Economic conditions are terrible. They had the, the worst food because, as you just said, Professor uh, Professor Hunter, what we find is that our health is really about our lifestyle. It's not genetics because they're going to get in this whole genetics war too. And that's the story for maybe another day as we build this out on the narrative side. But So the first study they do is, why are these black people sick and dying? So they they develop a little survey research. Du Bois comes and says, I'm rewriting all this. The year he gets there, the Atlanta University Studies engaged in 1897 in something called the social and physical condition of Negroes in cities. So they are coming back to that, why? Because in the social structure, they want this labor in the cities. They also want to labor on the farms, but the people in the cities haven't yet adopted and the cities are exploding and this black population as it is now, often in the worst parts of town and it's affecting their health, clean drinking water, the ability to have edible food and healthy food, right? Cause they're not on the farm anymore. These kind of things that land university study are up in gear. And so then Du Bois says this: they give him a budget, basically. Well, let me just say, he says in the autobiography, this published just after he made transition, he says the proverbial visitor from Mars would have assumed as elemental a study in America or American Negro as physical specimens, as biological growth, as a field of investigation and economic development from slave to free labor, as a. S- psychological laboratory and human reaction toward caste and discrimination as a unique case of physical and cultural intermingling. These and a dozen other subjects of scientific interest would have struck the man from Mars as eager lines of investigation for American social scientists. He would have been astounded to learn. In other words, somebody coming from another planet would have said, surely you've studied everything about these people because they're human in the world, but that person from another planet would have found out very quickly. No. To quote Sylvia Winter again, there are no humans involved. We don't need to know anything about these people except how to keep them working. So he says, the, he says, the man from Mars would have been astounded to learn that the only institution in America in 1900 with any such program of study was Atlanta University, where on a budget of $5,000 a year, including salaries, cost of publication, investigation and annual meetings. In other words, nothing. This is what he built these studies on. We were essaying this pioneering work my program for the succession of conference studies was modified by many considerations cost availability of suitable data tested methods of investigation moreover i could not plunge too soon into the controversial subjects like politics or miscegenation within these limitations he's the he is the best trained social scientist in the country he's at a black school which he says ain't really a university he's got these students he's got to teach they give him a shoestring budget and they say make this and he determines what you're about to hear next. Within these limitations, I finished a 10 year cycle of study as follows. 1896, morality among Negroes in cities. So he goes back into that uh, that one that preceded him and said, let me look at this. 1897, social and physical condition of Negroes in cities. Again, one that's being completed as he shows up. 1898, the first one when he's been there, right? Some efforts of Negroes for social betterment So that one is going to be everything from political uh, stuff to uh, institution building, all this work. 1899, the Negro in business. 1900, the college-bred Negro education. And then in 1901, the the Negro Common School, now K-12. He did university education the year before. 1902, the Negro artisan. Now he's talking about Black folks in the professions. 1903, the Negro church. 1904 notes on negro crime 1905 a select bibliography of the american negro he said i then essayed for the second decade a broader program more logical more inclusive designed to bring the whole subject matter into a better integrated whole but continued lack of funds and outside diversions kept even the second decade from the complete logic of arrangement which i had desired finally my leaving atlanta in 1910 and at last the severing of my connection from the conference in 1914 left the full form of my program still unfinished. I did, however, publish the following eight studies. I won't read all eight. I'll stop with the first one because this is the one we're talking about today. 1906, health and physique of the Negro American. Then he gets into Negro co-ops. He starts talking about the family, social betterment. I mean, the only ones that got redone, because this is what he said, after we finish our 10th year, we're gonna go back to our first topic. And health was built into those first three, by the way. And then we're going to see how much progress we made. 1898, some efforts of Negroes toward their own social advancement, a 9 city sociological study with mostly undergraduate students, a few graduate students and his friends in other cities, places like Washington, D.C., they redid that one in 1909. So he was able to get a couple. The Negro Artisan, 1902, they redid that one in 1912. But that health one was the first of that last group of pieces he put together. And then from that point of departure, we have our framework for beginning to see how we can remix and attack these broad issues that Du Bois had mapped out.
0: I wanted to start with health because that's something that everybody can do something about, that's and right. do something towards. So I want to welcome in Dr. Senyata Amen, who you introduced me to, uh, who has been on my radio show and has transformed so many lives, mm. and a medical doctor, you know, medically trained but understands. Five generations of healing yes. is in her blood, so yes. uh, yes. welcome her in. And I yes. uh, thank you, Doctor sunyata Amen. Unmute. Welcome. How are you? Hey. Good.
3: you hey, I I've been taking in all this information. I'm so happy to be here. This is fantastic. Of course. Yes,
1: we're glad to have you. We are glad to oh, have
3: you. The best. Make my whole Saturday every Saturday. No.
1: no. <laughs> Look, you about you about to make not only our Saturday today, but you're going to make sure listening to you and following what you're about to say. uh, You're going to make sure that so many of us have more Saturdays to enjoy each other. (laughs) So please.
3: I I certainly hope so. Let me get my little screen together. Yeah. So I certainly hope so. That that is uh, pivotal and germane. Thank you for having me again. Um, You know, in the course of what you were saying, Dr. Carr, about um, the health and physique of the Negro, and that being really what was germane to uh, oppressors. Let's just say, enslavers uh, yeah. after, during slavery, and after it, because you know, what are you going to do with these people? And then, if we are needed for physical labor during the time that slavery is taking place, and then we're needed for physical labor after that. And then we're also not intended as a group of people to draw resources by becoming ill, because then what happens? And this goes back to your conversation at the beginning beginning about uh, the difference in Cuba's healthcare system. And when a when a set of doctors is sent to school, uh, not just doctors, uh, all kinds of healthcare professionals, and there is no fee involved, for the medical education itself, and the whole idea is uh, acts of service is how you return those fees, then this completely changes the way medicine is approached. So let's just go, uh, we'll begin at the beginning in a way, um, or at least the beginning of our experiences as people uh, of color uh, more modernly, let's say that, so we cover everybody's understanding more modernly in in the uh, aspect of transatlantic slavery, and the, and the very first place we have to start, uh, especially when we start talking about how people were brought to the Caribbean, we and then you know uh, dispersed from there in a lot of cases. So Charleston or there is that we we owe it to ourselves to understand that our relationships with food and drink. Um, our our relationships with agriculture in general, and that those relationships have been dictated for us as indigenous people, because most of us have indigenous Native American blood running through our veins, that uh, was interblended with the people who were forcibly kidnapped and brought here. So what we have is this amalgam of people removed from land and then placed on land And the whole purpose of that was to farm food. So
2: Mm.
3: Europe's taste for chocolate, sugar, mangoes, bananas, coffee, um, you you name it, tobacco, citrus, all of it was at the heart of this forcible, uh, terrible, horrible experiment in free labor and that golden triangle. In that, we had so much enslavement revolving. Let's just take one thing that that, um, Professor Hunter was talking about in terms of our relationship with diabetes and uh, sugar in general. And think about the fact that we were enslaved principally for Europe's taste for sugar for hundreds of years, and we're still enslaved to sugar because of our relationships with sugar now. It begs our conversations about what are our comfort foods and why are those foods of trauma still our comfort foods. And that includes the things we created in the process uh, of scraps from other people to try to make foods for ourselves and survive. And no one's blaming ancestors for making that happen. I mean, God bless them. They, (laughs) they got us here. That's how we got over. Um, Now, where do we go from this point? So let's say let's say as an example, Dr. Carr, when you were talking about um, the setup of uh, HBCUs and how they originally founded on teaching agricultural science or keeping us in in those realms, um, think about just our modern food like um, chocolate and how our relationship with chocolate is so deep and. <laughs> Europe. <laughs> European companies are famous. The Swiss chocolate and the Dutch cocoa and the and even the one you got one in the cabinet. So some of us it says Swiss Miss. You know? This is not anything that comes from these places. And our relationship ch- I use chocolate specifically because chocolate has depends upon other forms of Uh, agricultural slavery and oppression. So milk chocolate, that's what most of us are eating, relies on vanilla and sugar and and, uh, cocoa, cacao, right? And it also relies on cocoa butter and it also, so there's all these emulsifiers, all this stuff that really is farmed in tropical places that make that one product that has made so many people rich. I mean, Nestle's is the largest conglomerate in the world. It rivals Coca-Cola. I think it may even be bigger than, they have their hands in so much food all over the world and other industries. And this has been built on the backs of slave labor and our relationship to those plants has to be examined by ourselves because these are our medicines. And now there are poisons in a lot of ways too.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm So as, I mean, part of this process and narrative and. You know, in class with Carr is for us to remember who we were. He always, you know, takes us back. This is through the lens. It doesn't start with slavery. You know, mm. how were Africans healing themselves? Mm.
2: When
0: got here. Like, what was? How, what were we eating? What What got us? You know, through and again, you know, we were doing so much more actively. We're more, much more active than we were. But what were we eating? What sustained us?
3: That's a great question. Um, one of my favorite foods. To even have conversation about is the staple of yams. The fact that this was the, many of these African yams that came with us. Um, some of the cassavas and taros and and other foods were brought with us in that travel from West Africa. A lot of those roots came from other places, much like the hibiscus that we come to love as sorrel in the Caribbean and and, and um, the uh, Otahiti apple, which is red and, and very large, but it doesn't, it looks more like a pear, that kind of thing, is actually from Tahiti. That's why it's called Otahiti, which mm-hmm. is the Tahitian name for their place. Um, lots of these things came after Cook and lots of these folks went to these, these uh, British and Irish and European captains went to South Pacific and brought those things over. And then you have the intermingling of those things with the people that were then brought from uh, West Africa. So yams of all natures tend to be one of our staple foods. And even the word yam is a borrow word from West African traditions, specifically like in Ghana and other places you will call to eat nyam. Like to eat something. And even in Jamaica, still we say, oh, you yam off everything in the fridge. Why you yam in so much? And it's like it's it's usually like a jokey kind of criticism that somebody, eh, yam, somebody, yam. And it and it really means to eat. And so imagine how important this healing food, this this sustenance is to us, that the verb to eat and the thing itself are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it traveled on these ships with us in many cases, right alongside us, and it was seen as a cheap, inexpensive, reproduce easily reproducible food for enslaved people in the Americas, well, we do what we do. We we freak it. We flip it. We reverse it. We make it into all kinds of things that are actually great and delicious for us. And the truth is that was one of our staple foods that also is medicinal because it contains lots of ingredients that uh, assist us. And in fact, there's been a new study that talked about uh, Jamaican athletes, because I think everybody here may be aware that Jamaican Olympians are famous all over the world, even when you see a Canadian sprinter, a, a British sprinter, a, you know, American sprinter. When you check their parents, their parents are Jamaican, and it's interesting because what what is being said is that the yams, like they used Usain Bolt as a as a um, a model for that, and the fact that those yams, where he's from, specifically in Trelawney in Jamaica, which was a huge. Uh, area of maroon colonization too, that that actually makes muscles rebound faster in athletic performance. So these foods that we were sort of trapped with became the foods that we used for our own levels of healing. And when we mm-hmm. talk about the maroons, which I know is one of your favorite topics, <laughs> Dr. Carr. Um yeah. Dr. had, had <laughs> last
1: week. Everybody wanted to know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, That's why my, my my friend makes those sweatshirts. I, think I the t shirts, so they are fabulous. We got to get them in the narrative. Uh,
1: no question, uh, no question, style. no question. I think a lot of people probably bought them from last week because I was rocking and it was like Karen's like, Where are these people? At? No, but anyway, but and
0: just on the t shirt front, um, when Dr. Amen was on my show on my radio show on Sirius XM, she said something it was on the anniversary of Malcolm X, which previously we already talked about on Saturday
2: mm-hmm.
0: and she said when you replace I with we can you repeat that Dr. Armin? can you just because re- this is the foundation of everything that we're doing here yeah, repeat yeah um, absolutely um, this is a, a quote
3: attributed to Brother Malcolm um, I have never heard it spoken by him but it definitely sounds like something he would say, and uh, because of his turn of phrase, his use of language, and uh, such a beautiful orator. And in addition to that, uh, there's the there's the tradition we have as as native people called hadith, right? Like you you can attribute a quote to someone <laughs> who's an ancestor okay. if it's uplifting. Like, yeah, <clears throat> but I've heard this many times since childhood that when we replace I. With we, we change illness to wellness. And this is pivotal in our understanding of uh, healing. A healing journey, excuse me, is only as good as we are. So even when you're saying, okay, well, what can we do? Um, It's not what can I do, it's what can we do? Uh, many of us have tried to become a vegetarian or eat better or what, you're only as good as the people who live in your house, who eat in your refrigerator, <laughs> you know, you'll get sunk immediately if you go and have your grandmother's, you know, uh, hog, hog laws and, you know, whatever it is that you associate with your childhood foods or people are eating around you. So you're only as good as your social set. So it's great that we're together because we can encourage each other in those directions to examine our relationships with these foods and agricultural products that may have been forced on us. And we now have to step back and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. We already paid that price. Uh, We already farmed that thing. We already gave our lives to to cotton. We gave our lives to sugar. Um, Should we be drinking this much much alcohol? We've already farmed these things. Now we need to kind of just step back and take a look.
1: So we oh go ahead, bro.
0: No, no, no. I was just gonna say. First of all, the uh, T-shirt and hoodies with uh, that saying from Malcolm will be available in narrative.
2: Yes. Now. Yeah. Oh, we're right talking, now. We're talking
0: about. That on it. Um, but, you know, as we as we continue this, because it's this a process is that, you know, a lot of folk are looking, you know, I want a solution now. You're not going to lose 50 pounds tomorrow. And you didn't get to a place of high blood pressure. You weren't born with it You didn't, unless you were. And then that's something else. You weren't born with diabetes. You weren't born with these illnesses. This has happened over time and generationally because we eat what our parents ate, what our grandparents ate. And now it's time, to, as you said reverse it. So I just, I want to pop out with that. But
1: go ahead, Dr. Carms No, not at all. This is very important. I mean, uh, uh Dr. Almond, help us, uh, and for folks who are listening to understand, as we just heard Professor Hunter say, these things take time. You were about to help us understand um through the experience in Jamaica, through diet, the importance of diet and community. That's one of the things we were talking about. in in a minute, we talk about how Black people came out of enslavement. In the United States, you know, that first and second wave of medical doctors really are attempting to grapple with how to heal our people. But what you just said becomes the framework. In other words, this isn't about individuals trying to maintain health or correct, this is about communities. And so the, the thing, I, the last thing I'll say, and I really hope you know, continue to help us understand how diet works in relation to community and, and, and ways of knowing in our culture. I'm thinking about a, a figure like Montague Cobb, Dr. Cobb. Montague Cobb, who you know was from D.C., went to Amherst College, uh, got a medical degree and a Ph.D. in anthropology, first black person to get a Ph.D. in anthropology, in fact, who spent his life in Washington, D.C. as a medical doctor and then on the faculty of Howard for almost 50 years Grappling with the idea that people wanted to say, well, race is real. White people, black people are just different genetically. And Cobb spent his life saying, no, nah, this is not genes. This is behavior. This is social context. This is what you put in your body, what you have to put in your body, how the society forms around you. So before you start saying that these people are like this because they came out of the womb that way. Slow down to understand that human beings are built, and, part, and the built environment. Once you're born, has everything to do with where you're born, what you can eat, who, what what people's values are. So you were about to take us through some of that as it relates to maroon culture. I mean, I hope hope you'll continue.
3: Yes, of course, and I want to challenge everyone who's listening to this that every time Dr. Carr or I say maroon, you take a drink of water. <laughs> You'll be very hydrated at the end of this maroons. <laughs> That's
1: right. Much clearer, no question. I had to go out and get that shot doc. I had to go get my- We're gonna do
3: morning. it together. It's we, it's wellness, right? Yeah. It's not high. Mm. Yeah, mm.
1: so- We had to finish this, this extension of you. <laughs> We had to get okay. that shot, and you told us to go ahead and get it because some things you just got to do, even as you're on your way to wellness, right? But anyway, you got to do it.
3: This mm. is part of the, this is part of the journey. So, w- when we, if we just look at the maroons as a as a as an example of our relationship to foods, and um, our separation from colonization, colonization, and the colonization of our tongues, because that's one of the things that mm. I feel like is is really super important is that being in this culture has taught us modernly, right? We've been doing this for quite a while, is that we know that Europe's taste for sugar and certain spices and and things that were very sweet drew the interest, their interest to how to get free labor to do this work and to put sugar in tea and have tea itself. We know there were whole revolutions fought around the world about tea, even in this country, um, that there are agricultural products at the base of these wars. So with regard to the Maroons, one of the lessons we can learn from maroonage, from people who forcibly took their freedom from the hands of enslavers and decided to live in colonies. Um, and, and the word maroon comes from which is the, the wild ones, the untamable ones. I, I'm a descendant of maroons from Jamaica and the conversations that are in these maroon colonies are fascinating around health because there's a general distrust of Western medicine, Western food. Um, You're not gonna see any meringues. You're not gonna see a whole (laughs) lot of ice cream. You're not gonna see, like there's just a general distrust that permeates because those foods are associated with our enslavement. So we're careful about sugar. We're careful about salt, usually only using the seaweed or using the salt that's already in the vegetable. And so the entire Species, let's call it the subset of of culture that is married very much to Rastafarian culture, gave birth to this like more vegetarian concept, the more this itel food, this idea of eating from nature and using herbs and um, continuing that because that's where our freedom came. Um, when we look at Queen Nanny and we look at Dati Bokman and Makandal uh, in Haiti, when we look at these. Uh, revolutionaries who forced the Europeans and and we're going back to 16 and 1700s, like when when we look at how they forced these Europeans to sit at the table and sign treaties because they were just so fierce, these fighters the basis of their fighting was based in African spiritual and healing traditions Mm -hmm. they say that Makandal and Nani and Dati Bukman all knew spiritual ways, uh, traditional African spiritual ways, and they also had a high understanding of herbs, then those things were used to both poison slave owners and, and uh, take our freedom and also heal the people that had been injured in trauma, in the trauma of slavery on a, on a variety of levels, mind, body, or spirit. So we have a relationship with nature that got interrupted in a lot of ways but then again we held on to a lot of those things our understanding of our connection is indelible. I mean, when you're when you're from the Caribbean and some people who are listening to this who may be Caribbean may know that if someone is asking you, especially an old-time person is asking you where you're from, they'll say where's your navel string berry, meaning <laughs> where is your um, umbilical cord like your placenta buried Mm -hmm. and what that means is that when you're born in these communities in parts of the Caribbean and Africa and Central America like you the placenta the afterbirth that comes after you a tree is always planted on top of that there's a hole that's dug a tree is planted and you and that tree are friends they call that your tree friend and that you are always connected to that place there's no disconnection from the land itself Um, If there's already a tree there, they'll dig a hole and put it next to the tree. There's um, a relationship we have with plants that is psycho-spiritual and physical. Mm -hmm. And we need to just move back to that just a bit. Right right, slide on back just to that. And the plant is what gets you lined back up with the divine. The plant will help you. It's an interconnector.
1: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If that's it's funny you said it because when we were uh, every time we go to South Africa, it's exactly what you said. Winnie Mandela, as you said, the the naval string, as you said, they're buried there at that tree in the yard of the house where she had her children, Winnie Mandela and Nelson Mandela. It's right there, and like, and a lot of times when you're there, of course, folks saying, "Oh, that's interesting," but you hear, but you hear a very different, you hear with a different set of ears when you realize that African people preserved that ability and not only preserve that ability, preserve that practice. What does that say about how we view um, our children in terms of even how we teach our young people how to maintain wellness is part of it by helping them understand to be connected to the ecosystem, connected to nature. I mean, how how, how does does that relate to things like play, for example, to uh, the types of even the types of games we develop? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a you know, two places that couldn't be any more different uh, two islands <laughs> I grew up on Manhattan and Jamaica uh, you know simultaneously going back and forth with my parents and grandparents etc they couldn't be any different and I I thank my lucky stars it, it, it gives you a little divergency you kind of you know there's a dichotomy but being able to see places where um, children are playing with Mattel dolls or you know, whatever, right? Like the Barbies that are forced on us with the unrealistic body shapes and, and the skin colors and all of that. And then when you go to Jamaica, our toy was the mango seed. I mean, literally the seed, like it it has its own hair. So once you eat the mango, you're like brushing the hair, like it's a baby doll. You're playing with, you're putting little eyes on it. You're playing with the coconut shell. You're doing, I mean, there's, you get ackies, there's the seed you're shooting them across the thing like marbles. It's, there's a completely different um, conversation about plants and interactivity. You have, you have play chasing the lizard. You just have different games. And and that allows us to be connected into nature. Um, The minute you're in a concrete jungle, you're in an area where, I I struggled sometimes to find a tree growing up in um, indigenous spiritual traditions like Santaria, et cetera. Like you have to go outside and pour libations. Sometimes I couldn't find a tree for like three blocks that I could pour on in New York. And that just shows you how much disconnection there is. In addition, right? Our heredity, as as, uh, Professor Under was saying, like we say, well, I have high blood pressure, that's hereditary, or um, diabetes, or now there are genetic predispositions to things, but then it begs like the chicken or the egg, right? Because now scientists are starting to see that genes can be shifted. So if you have trauma, it can shift your genes, like damage your DNA. Mm. So does that mean that, you know, our um, forced interrelationship with these foods that we're also farming or that we have to eat because it's what we have available um, then creates a shift in our genetics that predisposes us to not have a tolerance for certain things. Also, the food is hereditary. If you're going to eat mac and cheese or you going to eat this or you're going to eat. And I'm not saying, I mean, who doesn't love mac and cheese? It's amazingly delicious, but we can learn to make these things um, in a healthier fashion. So I'm not one of those do without people. I'm like, well, let's see how we can freak it and still eat it and understand the history of it. I mean, we wouldn't have mac and cheese in this country if it weren't for a black man, right? Thomas Jefferson's executive chef, executive chef, James Hemings, brought... That food, and there's several foods that he made possible in the Americas, and he's a forgotten figure in culinary art. And this is this this is the brother of Sally Hemings, right? This is the brother of of the of the girl, I can't even call her a woman that Thomas Jefferson was having children with. And he freed this man, did not free Sally Hemings, by the way. And imagine just the, the trauma of how we relate to food, how James Hemmings was feeding mm-hmm. heads of state, you know, presidents from other countries, prime ministers, whatever, were eating his food. And yet his sister was in the back house enslaved, having children with that. I mean, there our relationships with things are very, very pivotal. When um, I see people in the chat talking about their blood pressure and how um is that related to uh dietary issues is it hereditary i say that it's both the both things can be true both things can be true we have a higher aspects of diabetes because we have trauma and then we eat based on feeling better about the traumas that we've been sustained like the, the traumatic syndromes right but then also that shifts your dna i mean it it,
0: it both Did, things can be true didn't the high blood pressure help us stay in this, didn't the blood blood pressure and and some of those illnesses that we now are suffering with help us stay out in the field longer and give us the ability to be able to work the way we were working without the nutrition that we needed Absolutely,
3: that's a great point. Um, we have to think about the intense levels of heat. This very hard work. Mm. Um, it, it, look, go outside now, and go like like Professor Hunter was saying. Just go run around the block three times and come back. Okay. <laughs> It'll change your life. Right. Start to question your commitment to the project. You know, it's, it's a lot, right? And imagine these people are doing this labor. Think about the fact that, let's let's use chocolate as an example, that our relationship with chocolate began, it, with modern milk chocolate began in Jamaica. And the reason that happened is because the governor of Jamaica, that the British had appointed an Irish uh, physician, that they appointed as the governor of Jamaica, who, who was an alcoholic, by the way. Mm-hmm. And he... Um, found that the that the slaves were in poor health that he was that the maternal birth rate was like a third mm. like 33% or so of the children being born to to these slave women were dying and he discovered mm. that giving us chocolate with milk and sugar as a drink was restorative so this is this helped the birth the, the mortality rate go down so that there would be more people, of course, to do this very difficult labor.
2: Exactly. So
3: in the process of this, you got to think, what does our relationship with sugar and milk and chocolate and sweet things become when we associate that with restorative function and, and the lack of death of our children? Because we need this in order to to survive. Then we start to see, oh, then you get Cadbury, You know the big yeah. British brand bought his formula. And so there's still brands that exist that are capitalizing on our uh, injuries and that our diabetes is connected. You still have tons of people in Europe Black folk addicted to Cadbury, just like Hershey's chocolate, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and sure. it, and and we have to ask,
0: like, where does that start?
1: That's right.
0: I, I think it's profound that the thing that enslaved us was, is still enslaving us. When you said that, it, that shook me. So again, let's go back. You know, through our Africana lens, you you said we ate yams. You oh know, yeah. Somebody said about the pyramid. The pyramid, like that. What should we be eating now? Uh, and how do we break the chain of the addictions that we have because they're they're addictive, right? these these foods, the salt, the sweet, the all of that, the chocolate, it, they have properties in it that give us joy, you know, it sets our hormones and all kinds of things. How do we break ourselves? How do we break the chain? I would say simply that it's replacing it.
3: Um, going through oh, okay. turkey on things is difficult. It's That's really cool. difficult and it's a good way to slip, slide, backslide, right back down. So just replacing things. It, you usually use Uh, salted pork in collard greens, we're just gonna use that as an example. Then you're gonna step forward to, okay, let me show you how to put some uh, liquid smoke and to use some jerk seasoning and other things that are going to give you a flavor that you want, because we love flavor. We invented flavor, okay? We're all about flavor. So if if it doesn't taste good, we're not gonna eat it. So the key is to make analogous foods that taste great introduce more vegetables. I I heard Professor Hunter talking about, um, was it your dad that just didn't have anything green or any vegetables
0: on his plate? Yeah, he would would say he's an original Negro, so he can, (laughs) I mean, he really believed that nothing, nothing could affect him. He never had a cold.
1: Indestructible.
0: he got sick was with cancer. So you think about, you know, like appendix, this is how bad he was. You imagine how much pain you have to be in for your appendix to burst. Like in his, like he refused to go to the hospital. He didn't trust doctors. So, you know, I was surprised he lived as long as he did considering all of the things that, you know, because he felt felt like he could not be uh, stopped because he was an original Negro. That said, you know, I think a lot of Black people have this, you know, complex that we are unstoppable until we're stopped. Oh, yeah. Something. Yeah. It's still there. Um, yeah. Even with
3: COVID, other stuff too. We're just like, oh. we're built different. We're set up different. And, and that, to be honest, is... Uh, not, you know, neither here nor there on COVID, but that's because we've had to be indestructible for so long that if right. we got tired, you know, I ain't tired yet. They just, it's like, if you're, if you get tired, you will die. Right. There, there is always the threat of this person's not working fast enough. They're tired. Is it time to literally put them out to pasture? Cause our out to pasture meant You're not going to be on that payroll of that plantation. Plantocracy needs to around that.
1: That's right. You're obsolete. I mean, you're out. So, I mean, the 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 question of replacement that you're bringing up is fascinating because Mm -hmm. uh, is it your sense and experience that just about everything can be replaced. I'm thinking, for example, about one of those sugar-related byproducts. I don't know if it's it's correct to call it, correct me if I'm wrong, sugar pot liquor, which we might refer to as alcohol, (laughs) rum, for example. Somebody out there is like, well, how do I replace rum? Are some things things that we just probably need to wean ourselves off completely or, or is there a continuum? Could you help us understand this replacement concept is very powerful?
3: Yeah, well, here's what I love is the conversations we're having here because the minute, the minute, these thinking people who are listening to this, because these are all incredibly bright people listening to this. I want them to feel this in their heart, that the minute you hear that transatlantic slavery's foundation was sugar, and Mm. the rum is the next product of that sugar, Mm. and you see your ancestors being loaded onto boats, brought to a place, half of them didn't survive, they're being beaten down, And forced to farm this thing and still farming it, okay, for pennies, it may start to shift your thought of Captain Morgan was here. That kind of uh, bleep bothers me when an entire rum campaign is revolving around uh, people who stole other people, slave, you know, slave uh, pirate ship slavers and people who, raped and pillaged villages. Captain Morgan was notorious. So we have a whole rum we're drinking. Is that right? So the minute that we start thinking about our relationships to being enslaved by these foods, we start to think about, wait a minute, because look, uh, growing up, in New York at the time that I did and at the birth of hip hop there's so much of that was governed by food so many messages entered our consciousness through whether it was a nation of islam whether it was you know there's no swanin and dining there's no this don't eat that oh the white man wants you to eat you know it's murder king it's crack Donalds, it's you know there was so much uh positive social pressure on knowledge of self, so that when you got knowledge of self, you had to change your food. Because if you were out in the street eating something crazy and your man's roll up, you'd be like, what's that? Like, you'd get called out. Right. And so in this case, we have to call ourselves out, like, hold on a minute with the alcohol. Give, well, give me a minute.
0: You are saying something right now, because we were wearing not even, you know, it was that era, the black medallions. We weren't over-commercialized. We weren't wearing jewelry. We weren't killing each other with sneakers. And then something happened. And it's something that, that Dr. Carr and I talked about with Cuba because you said as soon as people, black people, start going to Cuba to get get trained, Cuba's done. You you said that, and I think I think it's interesting that all of a sudden this commercially we forgot we having whole ass conversations about Popeyes Chicken. We made them a billion dollars during the pandemic or right before the pandemic over some damn chicken that I'm not even sure is chicken. Is it chicken though? I don't know if it's chicken. So, so love it. I, love, I love what you said. The minute
3: capitalism enters the conversation,
2: Come
3: on now. it changes everything.
2: Definitely. And when
3: we think about the fact that the whole way we got here as enslaved people and as people who, indigenous folks whose, we, whose land we lost because of this, these plantocracies, right, we start to see things differently. We're not following Meghan Markle and the gang and trying to see what they're up to. And, you know, because those are the same people who made that money off. Okay, so let's just be clear. Let's be clear. And when we start to do that, we see that our ancestors, almost every single maroon. Right. (laughs) Almost every single maroon rebellion began with the burning of fields. Burning of fields was the first thing that happened yeah. because you're not gonna force me to work here. I don't work here no more. I don't even go here, yes, and right. neither do you. If
0: I do. burn this, we're done. Done. That we're is done. remarkable. So, so, so what wait, wait, is what's the modern day uh, equivalent of burning the fields? What yes. The modern day equivalent of that.
3: This is. I love you. You said that. So, our modern day equivalent. Take yourself to your refrigerator.
2: Oh, here we go. And
3: your cabinets and start doing a clean out. Wow. Start doing the research you would do on these books. Start looking at these companies. Del Monte, huh? Oh, Beatrice Foods. Okay. Oh, uh Nestle's quick. And the this and that. Oh, word. These people are still enslaving folks. They're still built. Mm. There's a few generations out from you know, the dull pineapple, you know, you see dull bananas and dull pineapples. These are things that were and are still being slaved over. We have to shift. And um, we knowledge of self is the first thing. So burning cane fields modernly means that we are in community of wellness. It, when a cane field was being burned or any other plantation crop, cotton fields, whatever it was, one person didn't do that. That was an agreement. That's right. We had an agreement that was a solemn oath, and we had the permission of the ancestors on whose shoulders we stand. And we said, you know what? We're asking for for permission to do this. We went to the elders in our village. They said yes, Mm. we did this, and we converged as community. So right here is our community. We're going to give each other permission to step outside of colonization, including our tongues. Not everything has to be sweet or salty, sweet or salty, sweet or salty. We need some earthy. We need some peppers. We need some um, umami. We need some bitters. You know, you in Jamaica, we even have a drink just called bitters. We just take, and if, and your grandparents put it on, they'll put it on you if you stand still long enough. You just get bitters. They, everybody lines up and they got to get a shot of bitters.
1: Lord have mercy. That's right. That's right. That's what we used to As you. I mean, we're talking about this and and I'm thinking about all the rebellions, Stono in South Carolina, Pointe Coupe in Louisiana, they burned the fields. And so how do we, um, there's a lot of young people who watch this, obviously, at various stages. You know, there are some young people who want to go to medical school could you share some insight of how you walk in all those worlds at the same time? Cause you walked in all those different worlds. I mean, they yeah. want to know how how do I, how do I sign up? Cause I'm going into this to be a healer, but I know I'm about to confront a system that is not about healing at all. How, how, what, what word do you have for them? Um,
3: well, it's, it's, it's interesting. And um, it, this is why these spaces are necessary because our, um, and, and this gets back to Du Bois, right? Mm-hmm. Our validation, our personal validation and community of larger white institutions or those mimicking those institutions has got to be questioned. Because you can't have a Harvard or a Yale or a Brown or um, Princeton or anything without slavery. They they literally own slaves right. that they sold to finance the institution. And then we anticipate, ooh, they got into Harvard, they got into Yale. And then our institutions mimic those same structures. Right. We have to think, I'm not saying anybody shouldn't go to a school, if that's, you know, of, of that nature, if that's what they want to do, be prepared.
1: Yes. That
3: imperialism protects itself. Okay. It's hold on, hold on. Wait a
1: minute. That may be another T-shirt slogan. Go ahead. <laughs> Wait a one, time, one more time. Imperialism. Protects itself. Imperialism. It please.
3: insulates itself. Oh, and, and the way that you can see that is, you know, 90% of your American presidents have graduated from those five school, four schools, like everybody came through the same university. How is that possible?
1: How about that? How is that say, even possible? It's funny you said it because my Dr. Cobb said when he left Dunbar High School in D.C. and went to Amherst and then Charles Drew was in the class behind him. I mean, all these guys go from D.C. to Amherst. He said, I got there and I realized these white boys are not even smart. And that's when I started to request I question race. And as you said, it, I'm thinking about Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley. This is Harvard and Yale. And you understand that these institutions aren't built around human development. They're about a brand and their extent, imperialism protecting itself. This is it's it's it's
3: um so if somebody's interested in learning traditional, and when I say traditional, I mean our indigenous African, Asian, Native American traditions of medicine, which are psycho-spiritual, by the way, psycho-spiritual, physical. There's no way to separate any of those things. Um, We have to go to elders. There's almost no other way to do it. And when an elder dies, a whole library burns to the ground. So if you don't get the information, then it's your fault. Um, Hanging out with people who look just like you is not gonna cut it. You gotta go to some elders and sit at the feet and say, you know what? I need you to tell me what you know about this. And, And that's what I had to come to as a young person was to release my resentment about being held in the kitchen and learning things. And I'm like, this is bullshit, man. I'm I'm learning to make rice or I'm learning (laughs) these herbs or I'm I'm like, oh my God. And my American friends are outside playing and I'm like this, what is this? And now I understand that I was being taught, I was being passed down traditions that I still use. And now everybody all the people come to our place to get that level of information because they don't have it. So let me give you a quick story. When I was in undergrad, I remember I had a professor who was a cardiologist by training. And uh, I we were having a conversation in the class and he's like, well, what are some of the ways you can bring down blood pressure or vasodilate open blood vessels? And, you know, what can you give people to do that? And I was like, you know, and he's like, oh, here's the witch. That's- <laughs> OK, go ahead. What are you going to say? So I said, well, um, cayenne. You know, is used traditionally where I'm from. Like we use hot peppers, bird peppers, or habaneros, and they make a paste. They'll put it in water, and you'll drink it for like a set amount of days, and then it start it starts to uh, bring the blood pressure down. And he's like, I've never heard of anything crazier. Huh. Now, fast forward three months later, there's an article in the uh, like a medical review journal, right? Like one of these know, and it says capsicum, which is cayenne, right? The active ingredient in peppers uh, should be given to triple bypass patients. The tablets should be given to them because it will help vasodilation, like open the blood vessels. And that way, the the pressure of the blood is like going down because it's not pressing so hard against something so tight. Mm -hmm. And I took him this article. I was so excited. Imagine I'm just a little young student. I'm so excited. I'm taking him. I'm like, Oh my God, look at this. Isn't this amazing? I wasn't even trying to be funny. Yeah. He took the paper. He took the thing and he's like, it's ridiculous. He wow. never even read it. And I want to tell you, Dr. Carr, that his office looked like your office. <laughs> every every uh, issue of that magazine was behind him and on the floor. It was his Bible. It It was his Bible. He may not have had that issue, but it was in something he respected.
1: So, but he he still touched it.
3: Because it was too much for his consciousness to take in that something that was dietary and that we already knew about could possibly have been of any validation, like could be validated. Get out of here with that. He just through it, he found us like, "Oh my god!" You know, but yeah.
1: that's, so, that's so crazy because one of the things, and for those of you who don't know, you know, Dr. Iman talked to our freshman class at Howard last fall. We were having a conversation as you were telling, leading us through how to decolonize wellness. And you told them a story about your medical school experience and nutrition. Did they teach? Did they? There's still- no.
3: There's no training. I mean, maybe now there's a bit more, but that first year. I didn't have any classes that talked about food at all, which to me is like, well, how is that possible? Look, the thing that people have to do every day pretty much is drink water. And then every few days or so is eat, right? So you have to breathe, you have to drink water, you have to eat. Everything else is nice. a little negotiable. It's on different time frames or whatever. But the fact that we wouldn't ever talk about this Was amazing to me. And I think there may be a few more training hours in nutrition, like a class here or there. But even that has to be thought through. How much food, when is it eaten? What is eaten? You know, we can't just put these many milligrams of sodium, this many, but what kind of salt is it? Is it the salt that comes from the ocean that we use when we cook stews in Jamaica, like those very maroon style things where they take a cup of seawater and that's the salt? It's natural. Or is it iodized, you know, white salt? the that's from a table salt like it, they, they're not all equal right so we have to question even like those nutritional trainings
1: so then what one of the things and it's interesting now uh, that i mentioned this book uh um, y'all
0: gotta drink experience. water
1: though oh yeah, wait, so did you say, did we say
0: maroons? you said maroon, maroon.
1: Oh, my bad my bad mm. just keeping you, thank you. yeah thank you that's imp- no, that's exactly right and here now reading uh uh her book walking over medicine she said you know here's a professor at michigan state they sent her to these clinics in detroit and lansing and she's watching the interaction between the doctors and the healthcare professionals and these poor black and brown folk primarily who are coming in and she's witnessing them not understanding all the medical terms and also being very suspicious of these folk and so she starts this project where she gets there Before they have their appointments and she waits for them after their appointments and as she's listening to them She's getting how they engage wellness in their Homes and their communities and how they don't trust these doctors because they don't think these doctors mean to heal them They're just pushing this medicine. I'm saying I'd say to ask you this As you've just laid it out for us and your personal experience and then what you've observed how much Of listening to elders being in community How much of that will help us? find remedies? And how should we even then view the medical professionals we do go to for the things that we perhaps can't do at home? I mean, how should we even view the whole medical profession complex? Because people going to the doctor every day, not trusting what the doctor says.
3: Yeah, that's a great conversation. And it's a good question. Um, It's very complicated, isn't it? And we see it from the... Aspect of COVID and you know vaccination, mm. not vaccination, like just we have reasons why we don't trust that stuff, you know. And then at the same time, I've been vaccinated. Like you, you know, you gotta figure out where you fit, you know, <laughs> within the aspect. Um, and I will say that you know, I, I did I did a bit of um, graduate work at Tuskegee, and the conversation is still there about the experiment. The conversation is still so. Low these many years later, and not that it shouldn't be. It's just at the top of our minds because we are used to that behavior. There's a great book Um I, I interviewed these folks some years ago called Body Bazaar,
2: mm.
3: B A A R, like a like a festival or bazaar. And that book was talking about the the market for body parts, body um, cell cells, stem cell. You know all of that within. Uh, people of color. But then also when we talk about that and medical apartheid, the idea that we don't want to hand over our bodies to anyone who doesn't care about us. This, This goes hand in hand with what you were saying, Dr. Carr, about, um, HBCUs, why they were founded, what they mean today, as opposed to maybe the original foundation of an agricultural and mechanical school or an a and or, a, you know, the original purposes of, of a Negro school for normal colors or whatever they want to call it, right? Um, which is that a lot of times when we send our children or we've gone to HBCUs, there's a different level of education. There's a different level of concern. That's right you know i have heard where if you didn't show, i've i've seen where somebody didn't show up to class three or four times and the and the professor came to the dorm oh, and no. was like i need to see where where what you doing what's going on are you all right
1: that's right that's right that's right and
3: you're not going to have that in other places the same thing kind of applies right that's why we typically look for you know we have black undertakers and we have black dentists and we have black doctors and we have black because we at least want the field to be normalized in the We want to be seen a certain way. And then we can argue about what medicine we don't want to take.
1: That's right. That's right. So
3: So here's the thing. I would never say that somebody shouldn't take whatever they've been prescribed to. The thing is, the doctor has to enter the conversation. Just like you're saying, Dr. Carter, this has to be a community effort. So it's like a marriage with one person. It just doesn't work. Like the doctor needs to be in on the joke. They have to know that you want to get off of these blood pressure meds. You want to start eating differently. You want to start exercising differently. You want to do other things to bring your pressure down so then you can get off. The, you don't you don't just not take this stuff because as we've said, we have historic physical and psycho-spiritual traumas that have created this circumstance. So we're going to have to, as Jamaicans say, when your hand is in the lion's mouth, you take it out slow, right? It's probably very African because we don't have lion's. But
1: they, <laughs> <And> then <laughs> in Europe, so it must have been. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so, uh, Dr. Thank you for, for Dr. Senyata, uh I mean, I had my gallbladder removed when I was in my 20s. Right. And wow. when it was done, the, they never told me why it, it happened to begin with. Why, I'm, Like they didn't tell me you were eating too many fatty foods. And then they removed it and didn't tell me that I need to stop eating fatty foods. I'm going to put pressure on my liver. So I went, you know, started reading and cut out all <laughs> oils and fats and stuff. But the, why didn't the doctor tell me that? This is a great story.
3: You know who else this happened to? My father. Wow. He was, um, who actually went, now that I should say this, he went to uh uh undergraduate in Cuba. He went to undergrad in pre-med in Cuba and and had so many things to say about how great that system was too. But when my dad came back to this country, he was a student who was probably at that point only 20, like 21 or so at the end of that university stint in Cuba. Mm -hmm. And the very same thing happened. He felt sweaty. He was like, what's going on? He fainted. Oh, wait, men don't faint. They pass out in it.
1: They don't faint. Since <laughs> faint. Yeah. He passed
3: out. He passed out. <laughs> My dad from Harlem, he passed out.
1: I, yeah, Harlem, he can't faint. Right. He's incapable of faint.
3: He <laughs> fell out. So he woke up. He was in the hospital. There were doctors surrounding his butt. He's like, what is going on? He's in Harlem hospital. He woke up. They said, oh, we took your bladder out. I mean, your uh, gallbladder out. He's like, what? Can you imagine waking up? It's like a scene out of Get Out, right? You wake up, you're like, I don't have a gallbladder. And he said, well, what happened? Why? And they said, well, I don't know. It got the stone. We decided to take it out. And that thing about these teaching hospitals, too,
1: right? No question. I got that book, Ghost of Johns Hopkins, behind me. I mean, you don't, that's, I'm not going under the knife. Asa, not, he said, not,
3: not just not without more conversation. No
1: question. So, Asa, he, he called. He said that's why they call it practicing medicine system. It's
3: a practice.
1: They, they're practicing. Oh, you, so, so what happened? They took he his.
3: He's like, what? So they told him, well, we don't know, but you won't have the problem again because you don't have a <laughs>
1: gallbladder.
2: I can't.
3: He, gallbladder. he sort of laughed about it a bit. Not him, but they were like, uh, uh, uh. and they walked out. One. Indian doctor who was an exchange student one little Indian guy he said it was just about this high he he sta- he was still there you know futzing around with the, the stuff uh, and he said if the Indian guy told my dad I'm never going to repeat this again and if you say I said this I'm going to deny it but we're seeing this problem too in India where people are eating too many fats and it's causing the gallbladder to develop stones and now that you've had it out, you can't eat those fatty foods anymore. Because my dad's parents are from North Carolina. You know, they they were eating all kinds of stuff, right? Like lots of and he was in Harlem. So soul food was king. My God. Right? And he he he, he that day. That day, my dad decided to become a vegetarian. And that's how I got here, was he opened a shop. As soon as he graduated university, he opened the first of what would become Calabash. He opened the first one, two doors from the Apollo, like there were two doors more and it was mosque number seven. And it was the perfect storm, the perfect environment at that time of consciousness of people starting to eat differently and do things differently. Um, That first store was called Black Pyramid. Uh, the first three stores he had. I guess pyramid wasn't black enough. I don't know. It wasn't black enough. The black pyramid. <laughs> so the same this story. He, he had no gallbladder. He's like, and I will tell you this. My dad is now in his eighties. He's never spent one day other than that day in the hospital. No medications, wow. nothing. He goes and plays tennis every day. He plays tennis. Like you would never know that this was an 80 something year old man. And that just goes to show you that you know that what i was saying about making your mind up that made his mind up for him it took that crisis and he used to say to me that pain is a heck of a motivator it'll it'll pull you to some other places no
0: question so the sugar we need to get off of um and and you can wean yourself off of sugar and not replace it with with equal or whatever other chemical you know honey like what what is you know what's a replacement for sugar and can people get completely off of sugar?
3: I really like agave. I like um, you know certain grades of agave as a sweetener, as a bridge sweetener for people because it has a lower glycemic you know index um, spiker. You know I I like um, fruits as sugars. Um, I, I I think that what happened is we just need to modulate our taste a little bit mm. and. And that's what we talk about with decolonizing wellness and decolonizing our tongues is we're so, we got so used to what colonizers wanted to eat that it became the norm. That sweet tea, the lemon cake, the, you know, and you and I both know when you taste those things, your teeth hurt. You're like, whoa, it make my
0: teeth hurt. (laughs) Like it's just too
2: sweet.
0: Your own body is saying, I don't want to eat this. (laughs) Uh, So white rice, you know, what, what are the things, as, as people are burning down their, their fields, what should they be taken out and putting in the fire?
3: I love the, this is a great, I love the idea of like white potatoes, white flour, white sugar. Um, you know, even even in Jamaica we have, we talked about this the other day in another set that um, people, we have a nine night celebration, which is like our um, funeral rites. And, um, and we also, have that like a, a as a festival. And a lot of times if you have, you know, a ride, so you have like nine night, the white rice that's just white will be called duppy rice. This is like ghost Gold. rice. Like this Gold. is not for the people. It's just-
1: for the undead. This is for the zombie. This is for the-
3: So imagine that even in Jamaica, like if I, when I was a kid, I remember we would, if we were going over to Jamaica from New York, that people would ask us to bring domino sugar. Like to ask us to bring white, like, big, these things are heavy, like a five pound, we had to bring like 25 pound or pack a barrel and send it. And I'm like, oh, we well, got in the
1: sugar. The sugar you name for oil. Dominican. <laughs> you can you could go next door and get the cane. They sent it to Baltimore for processing, and you want me to bring it back for me? Doc, you used to already. That's crazy. And that here's crazy. the part. Here's the part is that that sugar is the
3: one we can replace the white sugar with the one that's brown, the turbinado, as they call it, like the large crystals that are brown, that are raw, the raw sugar. You find you won't need much. It's not nearly as sweet as the bleached white sugar. And and you can start modulating backwards a little less, a little less, a little less and and pull the flavor of whatever you're eating more forward. Um, The idea that we would ask for sugar. I mean, imagine the colonization of asking for sugar in a place where makes make sugar, and it's the terrible sugar.
1: So, you know, actually, this is a good point. Mean, you, you've told me this before, and, and I've heard you tell enough, just countless numbers of people that we should think in terms of eating the color wheel. I yeah, mean, you, eat the
3: rainbow, eat the whole rainbow. The so rainbow,
1: so eat the rainbow.
3: When, when Professor Under was saying that her dad didn't have anything green on the plate. Whatever. Like we want yellow and green and we want purple and blue, just the Roy G. Biv on the plate. And even if it's not at that very moment during the day, it's just great. Like just have a handful of blueberries, like eat some blackberries, have some avocado, whatever. Like just think in terms of color. Like, did I eat all the colors of the rainbow and not Skittles? I'm not talking about Skittles.
1: Like actually, <laughs> The vegetable. natural colors, right? I mean, that's funny you say it, because even in thinking in terms of how we our ways of knowing, it isn't just what goes in your mouth, the aesthetic, the meaning, the culture. I mean, so, so where does, where do white foods fit, if at all? I'm saying whiteness isn't just a product of, of being processed, right? Or, or are there?
3: Well, uh, I mean, let's just think about it. Like, when you go and you look in a produce section, how many things are white?
1: Ha ha! See this? this I mean, yours, I, I you. can't
3: think. I don't I'm legitimately thinking with you. I'm thinking we're here together. I can't think of many things that are white.
1: Because even and, the potatoes are
3: that white uh, Maybe like, like uh, eggplants. Like I, I've seen them grow in Jamaica. Like they they're white and they're round. That's why they called egg. They call them garden egg where we're from. So like uh, besides. But usually they're dark purple, like they're really black. And and if somebody has black and very beautiful skin, they say you say they look like an eggplant. It's awesome.
1: That's true. That's true. <laughs> this is very. I mean, you drop many
3: white foods, even things you think of as white, like the cassavas, like that when you cut them and then they're white, they're not white inside. They're really quite beige. And if you let it sit there and you turn around and you turn back, it's brown.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. A couple of things. Caffeine. Somebody wanted to know. Um, and is caffeine good? Because I love the green tea, and you got me hooked on the matcha. Thank you. The matcha and the maca, I started adding a little bit of maca to my matcha. which uh, that's,
2: that's
3: my everyday. If, if I don't have that, I have mandingo chai. That's my other one. Or we have a tea called uppity. And um, that uppity. <laughs> The uppity, I love that one because it's a nice lift and it's lemon and ginger, which is astringent, which is like a nice cleanser. I like that a lot too. I will say this, that I'm a huge fan of caffeine. Look, my great-grandmother, who was my healing teacher, my herb master, she was a master herbalist and she was my teacher. Uh, She came from Cuba originally and over to Jamaica and she was the village healer of her village. She used to say to me that every single thing you eat is a medicine or a poison. You take your choice every time you eat. There's no neutral food. Even water is not neutral. And this is part of that concept of those sets of people that she's from, which are maroon people. Oh, yeah, hold on. (laughs) So maroon people is that every single thing that's in your pot, much like you mentioned, Dr. Carr, about eating a rainbow, everything you're putting in, every spice, every seasoning, every herb, every uh, grater of something, whether it's coconut, whatever's in there has a purpose, has an absolute purpose. I know that Jamaicans get a lot of heat for putting um, ginger in everything. Uh, We'll put ginger on, I'll put ginger on you. If you stand still long enough, I'll just (laughs) like ginger. It's, but I will say, that um, that's because we've retained a lot of our African and indigenous carib ways of healing. And so even if we're making rice, there's a little, it may, you may not even taste it, but we don't want you to be gassy if you're eating beans. You know, it's just impolite, right? So right, so right. we want, we're always thinking of that food and the same thing applies to caffeine. Jamaica grows some of the world's most expensive coffee, 60, bu- 60 bucks a pound for Blue Mountain coffee. The Japanese buy it before it's even picked. They pay, they prepay for 90% of the coffee on the island. That's how much they love it. And what I will say is that in the morning, you may have cocoa tea, we call it like the cacao pod, you know, made into what maybe we'll call hot chocolate, but it's, it's just, it's very thin, it's different. And Uh, We may have a little bit of coffee or um, some tea or whatever the case is. But here's the thing. It's this. It's not a venti. It's not Uh this big. It's not all day. It's not. You had it this morning. Move on in your life. (laughs) Use that energy. It's the it's the start of the engine. You started it already and you're driving. You don't need to, you know, when you try to keep starting the engine and it's like, oh, right. yeah, <laughs>
2: no,
3: no so that's what happens is it the engine's getting overstarted and then it burns. So what we want to do is make sure that we are just dialing the right amount of energy in on a daily basis. And if you if if any of us has one little bit of caffeine and then the rest of the day none, and you get a banging headache, you're addicted. And it's time for us to start talking about how to like detox out of that. And just get the nerves under control because i guarantee you that person's not sleeping well either
0: so if if you're if you're a, you know you have a headache you're jittery your kidneys are, are having problems you're drinking too much caffeine you
1: oh, just yeah. Have it. okay uh, yeah skin oh, is look, look, at <laughs> look, at her, look at her smiling hey you know she got me you got me hooked y'all got me hooked on that harriet's gun Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's my what is it? Five pounds. I just ordered the biggest bag of it. <laughs> are we addicts, Professor? Hunter? Help us, Doctor Amin. <laughs> is this a good addiction? Well, Have we so it addiction that we replace, or are we now right? You got us well, strung out on that. Yet.
3: You're good. See, here's the thing, too. When we talked about the resonance of, of what we're eating, the, the color of what we're eating, the name, what we're calling it, all of that, there's so many traditional African words that still remain throughout the South, all the way in Louisiana, in South Carolina, in North Carolina, like down in um, in your, your neck of the woods, go, going down into those beautiful areas in, in Tennessee and, and et cetera. These are Uh, our African legacies, when we say gumbo, or we say (laughs) okra, or we say, you know, these are all of our foods. In Jamaica, we have dukono, which is, of course, the same in Ghana. Like, all of our traditions that dictate uh, when we eat something and also what it's called. Like, our affection for it is because also it's referred to the way that our Mm-hmm. Ancestors love this thing. And that's the way we love people, is we feed them. Um, I, I saw a meme the other day about uh, Black mothers, like if they're sorry, there's no real apology, they just offer you food. They're like, you hungry? <laughs> it's like, that's how we apologize. It's, it's, it's true a lot of times, I've done it myself. And showing love that way, like feeding the people, nourishing them is the way that we interact Uh, Because we understand the control that food has. That's that has been our experience in the Americas is that we've been controlled because of someone else's taste for food. So where we can exercise our own uh, desires for food, it is a pleasure for us. Like that is an extreme pleasure because we're at least getting to do that for ourselves.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And food is not a um, food. Is a relationship, as you say, which is why, of course, uh, uh, me growing up, like you say, in the South and just knowing if particularly for sisters, women in my household, you didn't just eat anybody's food because that is who also.
3: The potato salad. salad. Who made the potato salad? <laughs>
1: went, right. who made red <laughs> salad? Yeah. Who made these greens? Who,
3: who
1: made these greens? And okay, and had- oh, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead.
3: No, no, I mean, you you have, you have your favorite auntie that makes a certain dish. You have your favorite, you know, somebody makes the fried chicken better than somebody else, you know, whatever it is. Right. Like we have a way of communicating through that. And whereas food was used as a weapon against us, this, this is our tool of love. And so in that, let's make sure that we're serving the things that are loving us and the other person. We're not like, well, it's soul food. I, I, I could never understand that movie that, uh, Soul food that, you know, long ago movie. But I, the last part of the movie, I didn't understand. I, the the woman had diabetes. She's gotten her legs cut off. They're still eating the same food. I'm like, what is going? On here?
1: I think that you understand it. You're helping us understand how to reverse engineer it because there's the impact of enslavement. Mm-hmm. The love is so there in terms mean, of our ways of knowing.
3: Necessary, necessary. Doctor Carr, are you willing to go to the stove and cook
1: some things? I, I started cooking beans with ginger and onion and I'm I'm taking my little baby steps you've helped us all believe I me I'm be, listening yeah no question are you,
0: are you revealing that Dr. Carr eats out a lot
1: oh i'm not um, there believe in this place what again. i
0: am revealing
3: is that Dr. Carr has been very loved his whole life and yes. uh black women have loved him his mother no and problem. aunties and no and, um, and he's been a fix-me-a-plate Negro his whole
1: life. Well, <laughs> and, yeah, but you know what? COVID made me a Negro that would have starved if I continued
0: that. <laughs> so, speaking speaking of, that, oh that I, I want us to wind down. And for people who are enjoying yeah. this, Dr. will be teaching a narrative Uh, We are working on uh, the schedule and the curriculum and there's going to be this uh, recipes and lessons on on food. And actually started this journey during COVID with um, with Carla Hall, because I saw this this program on CBS Sunday morning about the Madagascar vanilla. And, you know, they did it in their right way and they went there and they showed the people and who was and who was benefiting, who was making billions of dollars. The white folk and then the black people are still in the field and they never said anything about it. And I was like, we're still we taught them how to germinate this vanilla, mm-hmm. this vanilla bean that is so expensive, yeah. and they're making pennies on a dollar, still harvesting it. So that started this journey on food. So you're gonna pick up that baton and we're gonna run with it in a narrative so oh, y'all support. it. Um, but I wanna I can't not let you, I can't let you go without asking me about COVID and and the vaccine and you said on my show you know everybody here is vaccinated we will deal with it on the other side because we got to live in this world what is dealing with the you know the side effects or or some people having adverse reactions are there ways that we can help ourselves through this pandemic those of us who are vaccinated and people who are not vaccinated those are great questions um
3: it's definitely a personal choice And as we laid out here, there are a wide variety of reasons that all distill down to the same thing, which uh, is at the heart of our distrust of the government, our distrust of the medical institution, which is just an arm of the government. Um, It's it's understandable. We all have to make those choices for ourselves. The tricky part is that the choices we make because we're in community affect other people. That's so right. one of the things is this, we must be true to our word. So if we're saying as as a, as a community, we're going to get better, we're going to improve our immune systems, we're going to uh, do better, then we have to actually do that. You can't say, OK, I'm not taking a vaccine. That's crazy. And I won't. But you'll eat at Popeye's like you have to make a choice. <laughs> that, you have to make a, a choice. If you've seen the movie Food Inc. or Knives Over For- uh, you know, Forks Over Knives or any of that, like, you understand that it's the same industry, right? Like this is the same big pharma that makes the stuff smell so good that brings you into the fried chicken place. And you're like, "Ooh, it smells great. They're pumping that stuff through the <laughs> ventilation system. And they're putting stuff in. You can't, you can't have it both ways. Either you're concerned about your health and chemicals and things that you don't know. Or you're, you know, so we just have to be clear. Let's be clear.
1: <laughs> Let's be clear. You know, it's so funny. You said that, I'm thinking about uh, Route 1. Um, I'll never forget. Maybe this was maybe 20, 25 years ago. Um, I read an article. Maybe it was Harper's or The New Yorker where they talked about all the chemicals that are manufactured a long route one between like Princeton and New Brunswick, oh. Johnston, Johnston. People think they're eating food, but it's really red dye number two and a certain scent that comes with it and a taste, and it's all chemicals. So you're saying yeah. you Popeyes, it's not flesh you're eating, it smells and tastes, and all that stuff comes out of laboratories. That couldn't be true, Dr. Ahmed.
3: It's true. And here's the thing as we take this adventure that Professor Hunter so brilliantly said that. You know, this is about community and we're moving into those spaces as we post things. uh, I I was up all late last night putting together recipes for our community here because I was just so inspired by Dr. Hunter just talking about this stuff. And what one of the things that occurred to me is that um, in the process of this, we must rely on each other. That's why like joining narratives, being on there, getting information, um, making sure that we get off of that rabbit hole that takes us into those spaces because here's what's the here's the funniest part here's the trick that the devil played is that meat let's just use that as an example we talk about chicken like going out to eat these you know consecutive whatever it is right doesn't taste like anything if you boil that chicken or whatever it would turn your entire stomach it's the onions it's the garlic it's the spices it's the plants that make it taste like it does. And so all we have to do is just refocus those flavors that we love into things that are healthier versions. And like, look, I grew up in New York. I know that route one, you come through New Jersey, it's nothing but small sacks and all of that stuff is going in the food. It's amazing.
1: My God. So that, I mean, you dropped so many jewels Use the plants, since it's the plants that's making the meat taste in the first place. Eat the
0: plant. Skip the middleman. Just eat the plant.
1: <laughs> that, that's bars right there. among. <laughs>
0: and and everyone, uh, go to calabashtea.com Calabash Tea will drop the link in uh, every, I mean they got every kind of tea no and reason. every, ki- I mean no amazing. Reason. I just also bought um, I shouldn't even get into it. I, that's a lot of you will you will spend a lot of money, but you know it's important that we we like you said be impeccable with our word to ourselves and to our community. Yes. If if you're about this life, you know you can't have one foot over here and one foot foot over there and expect success. Absolutely. And you're putting everybody at jeopardy by making bad choices or lying about your your actual health. You're infecting other people, and that's important. Also, you know, after we take the vaccine, those of us who are vaccinated, are there things that we can do to to keep our immune system boosted, or is it just a normal immune boosting thing, the thing that you should, that we should be doing anyway?
3: Of course. um, There are lots of herbs that are specific and we've used for centuries to help our immune systems. Imagine that even as maroon people, (laughs) and then as uh, people who were stolen from other places, right, West Africa, Central Africa, etc. There were lots of germs, right? There was lots of, lot, there were lots of infectious possibilities that we had never been exposed to before, and that's one of the things that wiped out so many Carib native people was the the syphilis the the other germs and bacteria that came in with the conquerors that came there right with with the um, colonizers so we already started to understand what we needed to do in order to survive yes we have great immune systems generally because of all that and we are the descendants of those people but we also have access to those things Um, we we do lots of teas at calabash that are based in those formulas i i would say the first thing to do is start stop putting garbage in like your body's not going to be able to fight there, it's already fighting like two three battles like give it less things to have to do mm. so the red dye number three and the number two and the the sodium in the can and the this and that like give it less jobs and then it will start to do the job it's supposed to do but you, it's overworked is usually the problem
1: Medicine or poison, ain't what your great grandmother said. One or
0: the other. One yep. Other.
1: There's no neutral.
0: No neutral. Wow. I I think the ancestors would be proud today. Um, I know people have a know. Of my questions. My goal was to be a narrative, and we're gonna share. it We're gonna share the link, and then people could pop in. Had this grand vision. Didn't work out the way I wanted it to, but this is the beginning. It worked out perfectly. I know. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say. It happened how it was supposed to happen, and. Perfect. All the questions you have will be answered because Dr. Senyata is putting together an amazing curriculum for us to, to really heal. And I think we picked up the baton today that W.B. Du Bois uh, dropped. He didn't drop it. You know, he didn't get a chance to finish it. But that's our job is to finish what our ancestors started, which is why we're here. So um, I'm I'm uh, humbled and honored and so grateful. Um, you know, is just texted me. He said, you're putting together something like Hogsworth with the number of, folks that are coming in to teach. It's like
1: Harry Potter. Oh, no, seriously. Yeah. Well, no, no. Actually, Hogwarts would be not, because that's just some old recent poop but kind of recent stuff. So what <laughs> the African, what's the African version? Of,
0: we're we're and, in Timbuktu. We're, we're new Timbuktu.
1: Exactly.
0: New Timbuktu.
1: Exactly. Um, there it is.
0: There better it is. Than The Avengers, uh, and, and I want to thank you, Carl, because you're the, you're the key. Oh, no, no, you're, no, no,
1: no, 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 the the Actually, Let's go back to uh, the Egyptian. They had a place that the Europeans now call Karnak and Luxor, but they, they were known as Ipet Isut. And Dr. Beatty, who you've recruited to do Meta Nature, everybody can learn this. is Isut was a the place they gathered for education. Ipet Isut translates as the most select of places. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's what you... University, that's cute, but y'all just came yesterday. Let's go to yeah. the most selective places. <laughs> and we I, get to select.
3: You know, going there, Dr. Carr, I've been there. As yes. a- and going there, seeing glyphs on the walls of people with mortars and pestles, grinding herbs and putting things in that. It's like, this is a whole pharmacy. Oh my God. Like oh, you no, can we- see that this classroom was for pharmacologic study. Oh.
1: Like, oh. See, see that, see, we'll be on here for, right. Cause when you go, for like you said, we've been to come humble. We both been to come humble. On the wall, they have every the surgical instruments, the birthing yeah. chair. They say no, no woman should be laying on her back giving birth. They literally have the birthing chair there. You sit down, and and that's what four thousand five hundred years old. Just that yeah, but old. it's
3: new. It's new now to matter okay. medicine, modern medicine. <laughs> right,
0: right. We're, we're going to keep remembering. Yes, what yes, not, and we're going to keep this going. And Doctor, I mean, let me just say thank you for coming oh. to class today and. Thank you for joining you. Narrative and and being a part of the faculty. Uh, we I need a new word for that because this this is better. This is bigger than faculty. This is more than teacher. You know what we're doing in here um, is freeing people. No question. Uh, people like field trip. Yes, we're going to be taking field trips when everyone's vaccinated and we can oh, try yeah.
1: Which actually, oh, you should, yeah. Professor, you should, I mean, that, this is a point as it, it relates to the vaccine. You know, one of the reasons why I went in and, and did it. In addition to everything else, like like Dr. Amin is teaching us, you know, at some point you have to confront this for yourself. But there is, when we exist in this social structure, which is capitalist, which is imperialist, and trust, we are already seeing it being rolled out. There are going to be places you're prevented from going if you don't have this car. So just set aside the, the health for a moment, or at least don't ever set that aside, but think about the additional things. And think about the places in the world where they tested some of these vaccines and now are not giving them access. Right. And think about the fact that so we want to go to the Caribbean, we wanna go to the continent, we wanna go to Latin America. Think about the fact that people are being left out there vulnerable. What we while well, we're here right now, finally, what we're seeing in India. Right mm-hmm. now, India is facing a tsunami of this virus. And it's it's not being covered in the United States, in the news, but understand we live in the world and COVID doesn't know the difference between skin color or where you grew up or how much money you had. Borders,
3: there are no borders.
1: Borders, that's right, that's exactly right. There are no borders. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that. So as, as we're talking about opening back up, no, we're not gonna be opening back up. If we're not very careful, there's gonna be another shutdown and close. So yeah, it's absolutely
3: true. Like at at Calabash, we're not open right now for front-facing service and it's irritating to our customers. But it's because we love them. We're like, look, we'll send you something in the mail. Don't worry, we got you. But right now, let's be smart as community. Let's 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 just all pull in the same direction. We'll get together again soon. We're good.
1: No (laughs) question. question. And there'll be a we to do it. That's exactly right.
0: Yes. Yes. We need all hands on deck. Let me just say thank you again to both of you. We're going to see each other. I'll see you all next week. I'm going to be talking with you, Dr. Senyata, to start this series uh, as well as next week. And Dr. Carr, you know, we're going to be tackling John Brown uh, in there and the things you should know. Again, the Pyramid of Giza took 20 years to build. I'm here for it. And now we we have a 50 year plan to fix all that's wrong with black America. But it starts oh. the week. Right?
1: So, do we? And thank the, you, Professor Hunter. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, God, you, to tell you love y'all. Thank See y'all you. next week. Love